0: You're listening to Rare Voices, the show that reveals the wisest path to a fulfilled life for patients with rare and orphan disorders, brought to you by the people of Optimicare, I'm your host, Donovan Quill. In healthcare, it is easy to become cynical. We are surrounded by the shortcomings of our own industry. It's easy to criticize and point out where we fall short. Everyone. Frontline workers, patients, doctors, pharmacists, researchers, administrators. We all have, at some point or time, felt powerless to make things better. This powerlessness is made worse by our pandemic and the complications and uncertainties that surround us. But once in a while, we meet a person who inspires us to pick up our burden and move forward. Rather than preaching from some lofty hilltop, they do this by their own example. This episode of Rare Voices features one of those examples. At least he has been to me. Our guest, Bill Jolly, is an account executive for a global pharmaceutical company. But more importantly, Bill is a husband, a father, a foster parent, a cancer survivor, a not for profit founder, a marine, an inspiring human being, and to me, a true friend. So Bill, let's begin with a bit about your career. What has been your career path?
1: Yeah, hey Donovan. Uh, Started off um, in the United States Marine Corps Reserves. I was an aircraft recovery specialist and and the cool thing about that was I, I got to catch planes. So you think about the the tail hook and the cable on an aircraft carrier. Uh, well, we got to do that on the ground for uh, for short airfields and emergency landings. Uh, we got to build these temporary runways. Uh, and it was just it, it was fantastic. Um, after after college in the Marine Corps reserves, um, basically since '98, I've I've been in in sales, except for just a, a couple couple brief pauses. Uh, started with. Um, company in heavy industrial sales, uh, selling everything from, from tiny sanding discs all the way up to highly engineered diamond grinding wheels. Um, but uh, when I was in college, I was a, a, a pharmacy tech for a couple of years and I loved the science. Couldn't imagine standing behind a counter for the rest of my life. Uh, so I wanted to leverage that and made the jump into pharma and uh, been in pharma one way or the other since 2002. Uh, four different companies. Uh, Big Pharma, one of the world's largest uh, pharma manufacturers for for quite a while. Um, Started in primary care and got a couple promotions and specialty in hospital uh, and the pain market and anti-infectives. And it was a lot of fun, but uh, just wanted to progress in the field and hone my skills. Um, Started... Looking around uh, for for making a transition, and unfortunately, it happened for me. Uh, April 2009, I got I got laid off, uh, and it was uh, you know scary at the time, but the the best uh, thing that happened to me uh, because I landed in uh, with a small biotech and uh, got exposed to a um, uh, the orphan disease uh, market and 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 patient population um fell in love with uh, with the with an orphan community orphan disease community uh, and and excelled in sales and got invited to, to come to headquarters and uh, take over sales training uh, got to work in marketing a lot and do some neat projects I uh, love coaching folks so being a sales trainer uh, was a lot of fun uh, but I really like uh, the impact that I I get to have in, in sales and and the one on one interaction with with our docs and uh, nurses and all the st- healthcare staff, uh, but also the, the the patient interactions that we get to have. Um, uh, so do we'll get into here in a little bit, but um, due to my own uh, personal health, uh, I wanted to get into uh, the oncology space. Uh, so. Uh, Been doing that since, uh, well, for about four or five years now. Uh, And currently, um, with the, again, one of the uh, largest oncology manufacturers in the world. Uh, I'm currently an account executive Um, and uh, just just having a ball. It's, uh, I've been very, very lucky and and very blessed.
0: Yeah, you certainly have. And, you know, I, I know we met many years ago with one of those orphan drug companies. So looking at, you know, the different manufacturers or pharmaceutical companies that you've worked with and you know knowing you fell in love with the orphan and rare disease world what's been the biggest or most notable mo- noticeable difference within those populations from when you were working for a manufacturer perspective
1: so i think it's the the connection to to the patients so there's if you look at at orphan drugs or rare diseases as a whole. Uh, there's several thousand different types of, of rare diseases, but you know each one of those rare diseases has a a fairly small and sometimes a very very small patient population in the country and and even around the world. And it's this it's the connection with with these patient groups that is uh, it's just special. And you know when you're working with with a big pharma company, uh, with some of these, um, drugs that treat tens of thousands of people sometimes, uh, the, are it's, you know, very needed and rewarding, but un- unfortunately, uh, you, you, don't get the connection to the patient communities. Uh, when we were at that, um, at that biotech working in this orphan drug space, uh, it was, it was incredible, the The connections that I made with individual patients and and their families through you know what started off with with fundraising um, events that they would have, um, and then turned into our patient support groups, uh, and then at conferences, I even got to know um, most of the leadership uh, for for some of the the patient advocacy groups, so that connection. Um, with, with big pharma. I just, um, I I didn't have previously and, uh, and just really craved and, and connected with, uh, with these folks that, um, you know, life dealt a, uh, really pretty crappy hand.
0: Yeah. So one of the other things you touched on is, is your own personal, um, personal, you know, diagnosis and, and, some years ago you you wound up on the other side of healthcare. So you wound up, you know, sitting in front of the doctor as a patient. You, you received a life altering diagnosis and, you know, can you kind of talk about that? How did you stay out of the funk? What did it mean for you? Kind of what, how your mind shifted about your work and, and life in general?
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure thing. Um, actually back in 2011, um, I was diagnosed with a type of blood cancer, a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma called small lymphocytic lymphoma. Uh, and any time you hear the words cancer, it's, it's, it's scary as hell. Um, I was 39 years old and my two daughters at the time have, now have a third, but my two daughters at the time were only 14 and 10. So a 14-year-old, 10-year-old, I was 39 years old. And uh, and unfortunately, I lost my dad um, to sickness when, when he was only 39. Uh, so so being 39 obviously hit me um, pretty pretty hard. Uh, and and uh, I remember asking the doc, my, my wife Tracy was there with me, the obligatory so doc, how long do I have? Um, and and come to find out, he was very wrong. Uh, but he uh, that original oncologist told me and Tracy that I only had about 10 years to live. So being 14, having 14 and 10 year old daughters, you know, the, the, the terror of, you know, the thought of not being there to watch them grow up and have kids of their own, uh, was obviously a pretty profound impact on me. Tracy and I go out to the truck and just start bawling. Um, but, um, you know, that changed a little bit because luckily I was in healthcare um not a, you know, not a licensed uh, healthcare provider, but I, I knew how to research and, and I did have a lot of friends that were docs. So I just started asking around and, and doing my research. And, and that helped a lot. Um, because I did find out that that original oncologist didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, and there was, um, there was new, um, new medications, uh, just on the, uh, the short horizon. Um, you know it's it, anytime you hear the words cancer uh, it, it's never a good day um but and, and for for the first uh few months uh, i'll say that uh, it it was really scary it was dark um you know i didn't i didn't want to talk to anybody for for a while um and uh it just you know finally i just realized that uh you know i um I was I I got tired of of feeling like that. F- feeling tired of being depressed and and feeling crappy all the time. I, I mean, heck, my last name's Jolly. Most of my friends call me Jolly. A lot of people I know don't even know my first name. So, you know, that's just not how I am at all. And um I decided to just as as much as I can stay in a positive place. Uh, and, it, and it took a while, you know, 2011, that's quite a few years ago, almost nine years ago now, December 7th, 2011. So Pearl Harbor Day, I got diagnosed. So nine, my nine-year anniversary is coming up here soon, which is amazing. Um, you know, and, and, and even still now, I, I have some some rough days. Um, you know, my 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 professional side to my personal side to my volunteer side, all three of those, uh, they're kind of blurred together now, which was intentional, but, you know, I, um, I talk about, I talked to oncologists all day long. I'm in cancer centers all day long. I see the patients. Um, you know, I, I, I have a little taste of what they're going through. So every once in a while, it just kind of builds up and, and it gets to me, but, you know, I, I think I'm mature enough now. And, have a, a fantastic wife and daughter that I just come home and I tell them, I'm like, Hey, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in a bummy mood, just need some time. And, you know, I wake up the next morning, thanking God that, you know, another, um, another day to smile and it, uh, you know, and then I'm back to normal. So it's, um, you know, it's, it kind of transition a little bit here, but it's, um, you know, this personal experience I think has, has allowed me to be much more effective uh, in in my personal, uh, or excuse me, in my professional life as, as well.
0: Yeah. So, just pause there for a second because I just, you know, I think I was one of the first people actually you talked to uh, when you had your diagnosis, and it's kind of coming back to me. We were riding in Hickory, North Carolina, and you were kind of unloading on me of you know your emotions and what you felt. Yeah. And, you know, through subsequent conversations we had, and I just want to tell you how impressed I was back then and still am impressed by you, um, even to this day. So thank you for uh, for always being the jolly fellow, the jolly uh, man.
1: Well, thanks, man. I, I appreciate that. You know, it's um, there's there's always somebody out there that has it worse than you. And uh, and, and thankfully, the, the type of blood cancer I have, um, there, there's not a cure for it. Uh, but, but thankfully, uh, there's, uh, it, it's, it's treatable right now. Uh, and, and plus I've, um, I, I spend a ton of time right now taking care of myself and have learned a lot about this new field called exercise oncology. And, uh, that's, that's a huge focus on my life. But, um, you know, I always think even when I'm having one of those you know, bummers of a day that, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a heck of a lot of people in this world that are, uh, much Less fortunate than I am, so it's like you know you got to pick up your big boy pants and you know just keep going and keep smiling and do what you can. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So so touch it on that and and looking at you know you said that having this diagnosis and and kind of working through the process um, has really helped you and allowed you to be better at what you do now and and you know through exercise oncology through some of those things, but you know, looking at your work experience and, and your patient experience, how do you think our industry as a whole could change? And what should we rethink about getting therapies to patients with rare and orphan conditions?
1: Yeah. So, so I've mentioned this a lot to, to folks in passing that, um, you know, any, any company that's, that's in the the healthcare space, no matter what they do, uh, if they, if they sell a product, um, geared for patients, you know. Everybody says they pay, put the patient first, um, but uh, unfortunately, more times than not, that's that's lip service. You know, the adage "you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk?" Uh, holds holds a lot of weight for me. And you know, I, I think um, healthcare providers and patients and and patient caregivers. Are all able to um, tell pretty rapidly uh, whether a uh, whether a company really truly cares about them, uh, and the ones that you know fully believe it, the 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 companies that you know talk about this getting connected and, and asking the questions how they can get connected to their patients, the the ones that do that routinely. You know are the ones that um, are, are seen as 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 those companies and and those employees that that truly care about these patient
0: communities? So looking at that, and you know I know we've talked in the in the past, you know you, you you've you've always said, ask yourself these three questions and and when you you know can you share with us a little bit what those three questions are kind of your mantra when you're talking about a patient first um, experience?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, you really have. Th- I-, I think a a healthcare company really has three customers: uh, the doctors, the the patients, and and their employees. And so, I, I think my my word for twenty twenty is 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 intentional. And I'm trying to do that uh, in in as many as. In- excuse me. I'm trying to be uh, intentional in as many aspects of my life as I can. Um, and and I think the first step to being intentional, if you want to change something, uh, it, it's asking the right questions. So I, I think that for for any healthcare company and for any um, patient advocacy organization, it's important to know. You know, the three questions are: How do doctors see us? How do our customers see us? Uh, how do how do our patients see us? And and how do our employees see us? And the process of asking those questions um, and and look and being an introspect uh, is is the first step to to making a change and uh, truly being authentic.
0: So let me ask you, let me let me you know and and I know we've had a conversation on this, so it's it's I, you know I know being intentional. And having those thought, that thought process is very key to really understanding it and essentially answering those questions in the truest form possible. And, you know, I think that's the it's a great mantra. It's a great three questions, you know, how do doctors see us, how do our customers slash patients see us and how do our employees see us? So I I think that's a it's an awesome mantra for the folks that are in, you know, working with orphan and rare diseases to always ask those questions with everything they do. And I know we at Optimy Care always ask that. And it's something I learned from, you know, dealing with you and working with you for so long. So because I've known you for so long, I know that you're a person who's focused on making a, a difference. And not just through your work in pharma, but with your personal life. So, talk to me a little bit about your your mission and and your mission in life and what you call your mission.
1: Yeah, happily, thanks for asking. I appreciate that. So, you know, just getting older um, and and realizing as as you get older, I'm I'm approaching fifty that you know you're not invincible. You're not going to live forever. Uh, you just start thinking about how you want to spend your life. Um, you know, it's funny. I I started reading the Bible more. I've been in Methodist churches since since seventh grade. Um but, you know, and, and it's funny, I've heard these stories uh, hundreds hundreds of times. Um but one day I was reading the Bible and it just it just kinda hit me. Um Matthew 25, 35. Uh and it's it it's profound um because it's Jesus gives us a a, a roadmap for how we're supposed to live. Um it, it's kind of a long verse so I'll paraphrase it, but he basically says to his, uh, his disciples, he said, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Um, I, I needed clothes and you clothed me. Um, I was a stranger and you took me in. I was sick and you took care of me. Uh, and I was in prison and you came to visit me. And his disciples said, you know, when did we do all this? And he says, basically, he says, truly, I tell you, whatever you do for the least of your brothers and sisters, you do for me. And for some reason, I, I was just listening to it as a a, a podcast, actually, and uh, in the car driving, and I thought, well, well, damn, <laughs> I'm not doing any of that. I'm not taking care of the hungry. Um, I haven't really gone and visited uh, any of my friends when they were sick. I've never been to prison to visit anybody, and and so I just, um, you know, I, I made it a, a mission of mine that that I was gonna actually you know check each one of those off and and it wasn't actually just okay I checked the box and I'm done right it's 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 owning it um it gets back you know you can talk the talk but can you walk the walk so I was determined to to walk the walk um and and uh, so we we helped some friends start a uh a uh a, a charitable group that focused on um, homeless in, in downtown Raleigh when we were there. We're in uh, Texas Hill Country now. Um, and then a couple years later, uh, Tracy, my wife came to me with this uh, idea of becoming foster parents. and um, it, it was funny at the time when she first brought it up, I, I didn't I wasn't fully engaged. Uh, but as time went on, a year and a half or so passed, and, and finally, it just uh, the more I thought about, it, the more I liked it, and, and realized that you know we had these two incredibly beautiful girls uh, who are now almost twenty three and, and nineteen. That uh, we had a lot of love left to give, and uh, so we went uh, went through the classes and uh, became foster parents and got our license. It started in February of two thousand seventeen. We got licensed in October. And uh, became foster parents, and, uh, and and it was amazing. We had no idea what what was in store for us. But you just, when you're foster parents, you just get a phone call. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. You can ha- you can kind of select what kind of kids. So you know, we we became friends with people who only wanted like teenage girls, uh, like a single uh, a single lady or or retired woman that we knew. They wanted to mentor. Older teenage girls, and some people just want babies because they want to adopt them, and, and we didn't really care. Um, but our very first phone call, about three weeks after we got licensed, uh, was for a five-day-old uh, baby girl uh, born into this world with cocaine and marijuana in her system, into a horrible life situation. Um, you know, so of course, instantly we we said yes, and uh, we got this beautiful baby girl, uh, and then just gradually fell in love with her. Uh, her name is Insley Skye. And um, the longer we had her, the more in love we fell with her. Uh, and uh, unfortunate for her biological mom, but very fortunate for us. Uh, God had other plans. And um, two years later, we, uh, we adopted her and made her a permanent part of the, the Jolly family. So she's going to be turning three in November uh, and just uh, cracks us up every single day. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's things like that that, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about how blessed I've been, um, you and me both. Uh, we've been very lucky in our professional and, and personal lives. And, and I think the, you know, the all the, the trials that that I've learned to, to live with and, and overcome um, and, and being fortunate enough uh, financially and professionally to be in a really good situation that you know what, yes, I, I we really do have a lot of love left to give. Uh and and we moved cross country recently. Um so once our, our house is built, we'll start fostering again. Um and, and who knows, you know, what uh what lies in store for us. Um but you know it's it's get involved with with actually really just however I can help. And you know, before we we started recording, we kind of talked about um, talked about this a little bit. Whenever an opportunity comes in front of you, anytime somebody asks you if you can help, uh, if it's something you haven't done before, you know, you hesitate, you pause, right? And there's some anxiety and fear, and you automatically think, "Well, I've never done that before, so I don't know how to do it." And and I've forced myself through practice to get in the habit of just automatically saying yes. You know what? It's it's a good cause. It's something that interests me. I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but I'm just going to step out on a leap of faith, um, and and that hasn't let me down yet. And so, um, going back to 2000, and so I got diagnosed with blood cancer in 2011, 2013, through a a friend of church uh, who was uh, in, involved in uh, politics. Um, it just happened. Actually, during Sunday school to tell me about an opening. It was a volunteer, uh, position for the state and they needed a cancer survivor for the state's uh, advisory committee for cancer coordination and control. Uh, this is the group that, that actually helps advise, uh, the state, uh, to write a cancer plan. And I didn't know anything about it, but it sounded fun and, uh, I wanted to give back. And so I joined this, this, this committee. Uh, appointed by the governor, which is really pretty cool. Uh, and actually, a short time later, a few months later, I was I was voted in as uh, prevention subcommittee chairman. Um, so you know, my name is on the North Carolina State Cancer Plan, which is so very cool, uh, and and got me exposed to to countless people in politics and in in the healthcare space. Uh, At very high levels sometimes that, you know, if I hadn't said yes to my friend uh, at that one and, you know, first initial instance, um, you know, my life would be very different now. Um, You know, that's again, I I said earlier that that, um, you know, my life is is kind of blurred right now intentionally between my my personal health um, and professional and, and advocacy. And and through all that, um, I, I mentioned this, this new field of medicine called exercise oncology. And, and I've really gotten passionate about that and try to put, put my, my volunteer time behind that. And it's, it's, it's amazing what exercise can do just, just only briefly. um, I feel free to interrupt me anytime, Donovan, but, but
0: no, I think our listeners would love to hear all this. So it's fascinating. All
1: right. all right. Very cool. So, so this is amazing. So, you know, our bodies were built to move. Um, and and when, when, when we don't move, bad things happen to us. So, so virtually every chronic disease can be either fixed or dramatically improved. Or prevented in the first place uh, if we just routinely exercised, and there is a massive body of scientific evidence now, um, countless journal articles in some of the biggest journals in the world that show some really neat things about what exercise can do for cancer. So there's there's a massive over a million um, subjects uh, studied that showed people who exercise get far less cancer than those who don't. The second component of exercise oncology is cancer survivors who are going through active treatment, um, who everybody knows, even if you haven't heard or had cancer yourself or or know somebody, um, just the the chemotherapy uh, and the treatments for cancer can, you know, are Sometimes it's worse as the cancer itself. Uh, So everybody gets fatigue. It's the number one side effect of cancer, no matter what type you have. Uh, But there's a lot of other things, including uh, nausea and and just, you know, feeling a weakness and, and depression, all kind of side effects that come along with just not just the cancer itself, but the treatment. Well, cancer patients going through active treatment have significantly less side effects uh, if they exercise than then those who don't. And the really neat part of this is uh, cancer patients, cancer survivors who exercise, um, their cancer comes back far less often than people who don't exercise. Uh, the body is just incredibly resilient. If, if we don't treat it the right way, eventually it catches up to us. Um, but it's you know quite literally not a death sentence. That that message is just is not loud enough. So um, uh, again, one of my missions. I've I've got a few now in life that uh, that help me lead a pretty fantastic uh, journey. But one of them is to raise awareness for uh, for the benefits of of uh, exercise oncology. Pretty neat.
0: No, that is really neat. Um, you know, and thanks for kind of explaining that through. So, looking at this podcast, and since it's called Rare Voices, what is one thing that you wish more people understood about rare and orphan patients? So, uh, there's really
1: two things, and it doesn't matter if um, you know you work in pharma and you're working on the the cure to a rare disease, or you've already got it and you you supply a treatment. If you treat patients with it, um, if you're a patient yourself, or or someone that cares very dearly for for a patient or, or a person uh, that has a rare disease, uh, the, the two most important things are education and a feeling of connectedness. Con- Connectedness—big word for me. Sorry. Um, edu- education at, at all levels, um, because um, gosh, knowledge is is power um just couldn't be more true with with rare and orphan diseases because so many times um you know uh, uh, it takes forever for a patient to get the right diagnosis um they call them rare diseases because they're they're rare you know many times most docs have either never seen a patient with with this particular rare disease whatever it may be or, or maybe they've only seen a couple or you'll hear like oh I haven't heard about this since medical school so so that means your your doctor most likely isn't um, very knowledgeable about this due to no fault of their own um, so we need to figure out different ways to, to educate them um, because we, we know that the sooner the the patient gets a correct diagnosis no matter what again no matter what rare disease they have but the sooner they get a correct diagnosis the sooner they can, start uh, possibly and hopefully getting treatment um but also uh just as important sometimes uh the sooner they can start making modifications to their lifestyle uh that that can help just as much sometimes as as the treatment itself um and then for for the patients themselves um having knowledge uh whether it comes from pharma manufacturer from an advocacy group um, learning about their disease and, and, and teaching others about it. You know, sometimes the, uh, I've heard uh, quite a few stories from different types of rare diseases where, you know, the patient digs in, learns everything they can, and has to bring a big stack of, of articles and information to their doctor to, to help educate their doctor. Um, so, so how easy are we going to make that for, for that patient to, to learn? Um, you know what? What is the what is the education level of of the patient or or or, or a caregiver that's taken? Maybe it's their child. Um, you know what's the education level or the you know the internet savvy of, of somebody that gets diagnosed with this? Um, we've we've got to think about someone with you know a, a, a low education level or low socioeconomic. Uh, status that uh, you know we got to think about those folks and, and how are we going to educate um, the patient communities uh, and and at the same time educating our, our healthcare um, providers as well and the second component of that is is connectedness and everybody has to work uh, hard to, to make this happen because uh, again through or across several different types of rare diseases I've come in contact with people. Um, you often, very, very often hear somebody say the words, "I've never met somebody with my disease." And through the internet, thankfully, it's much easier to stay connected and you know as, as rare diseases become um, or, or support groups, uh, advocacy groups as they become more savvy and, and larger, you know sometimes there are support groups and sometimes there are conferences, and that's when you can get together. Um, but this feeling of of being alone that that I'm the only person I know that has this uh, that's you know that's 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 a huge weight to, to carry and so the more connected we can help uh, folks with rare diseases meet other people and make them feel like they're connected to this community um, you know this, this isn't a job just for the advocacy group itself. Um, pharma can play a, a huge role in 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 helping facilitate this this feeling connectedness as, as well. Um, but you know, I've you and I have been lucky to to work in a in a space in a particular rare disease where the uh, there there was a huge sense of connectedness um, because there was some people that that had the right skills and and just grit to to make some incredible organizations. Uh, And and you saw the the pharma world and the advocacy world um, partner very, very closely to help patients. Uh, And and we've seen, you know, when it works, it works really, really well. And you get this um, huge sense of community. uh, And... And it's uh, it's just a fantastic thing when you when you find somebody, you get them diagnosed early uh, and then you say, hey, why don't you, you know, you hear from a doctor or, or they look online, their Facebook page and they realize in a few weeks there's going to be a patient support group meeting, um, you know, in their own town. And they get to go, uh, you know, find out from other people um, what it's like. It's, you know, we've both seen that firsthand. It's it's a pretty cool thing when it happens.
0: Absolutely, and, and, I, and I think yeah, you hit the nail on the head with both those points, and you know, really connecting to the the community to the to the patient is is key for that patient's whole well being. So let's let's look at you for a second. What's next for you? How do we learn more about Bill Jolly? How do we uh, how do we see what's next for you?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, this is good timing because uh, here in the next uh, couple of weeks, um, I've. We're launching a new nonprofit that uh, actually I've been working on for, for, for about nine years now, ever since I got diagnosed with, uh, with blood cancer. So uh, here in the next few weeks, we're launching a, a nonprofit called Interrupt Hunger. Uh, and Interrupt Hunger, is a, uh, it's a, weight, a charitable weight loss organization. And our idea is to help people lose weight by, asking, uh, by motivating them to uh, To donate their weight and donate a dollar for every pound they lose to help fight hunger. And you're actually going to be able to select a, a food bank in your neighborhood to, uh, to benefit from the proceeds of, of your hard work and, and weight loss. So say you lose uh, five pounds, come back to our website, uh, you, you donate $5, you get to pick the food bank. Uh, that's gonna benefit for for your five five dollars uh, and and the neat thing is it you you're literally quite literally helping your neighbors who who need our help the most. Um, you know hunger is hunger is a crazy thing so and there's actually two faces of hunger. so uh, on one hand, uh, more than seventy percent of Americans are overweight or obese just it's a it's a national epidemic uh, all of us, uh, or, or so many of us struggle struggle with overeating, um, and on the other end of the hunger spectrum, uh, one in eight. You know, during COVID, it could be as low as one in six Americans struggle with something called food insecurity, or, or not knowing where th- their next meal is going to come from. Uh, that's fifty million Americans uh, that are struggling with with food insecurity, struggling with hunger, um, and. You know, it's it, it's crazy. Both groups struggled hunger just in, in vastly different ways. So uh, I've been working over the last um, last several years to, to, you know, make this different. Um, we use a three step program um, and it, it's not you know, it's not just we're not relying just on our compassion alone. But uh, we we use a our Interrupt Hunger wristband, just a regular um you know, awareness campaign wristband. you Use that to, to change the way you eat is step one. Um, so we teach you how to use this wristband to to, to modify your behavior and, and help you uh, with cravings, and also help you with portion control. Uh, step two is uh, the our weight loss roadmap. And um, you know, I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, I'm I'm doing everything I can to be intentional this year. Uh, and this roadmap is is really my journey. What everything I've learned over the last nine years about you know getting getting and staying healthy. Uh, and the third step of this of interrupt hunger is is donate your weight. Uh, and and we want your you know we want your compassion and, and your love for you, for your neighbors to to fuel your motivation. Uh, so every time you lose another five pounds come back to interrupthunger.org and and donate your weight to uh to a local food bank and uh it, it's it's amazing what food banks can do um, you know every every dollar that most food banks get uh, especially the largest one the, the largest national network every dollar they received uh, allows them to to provide ten meals to those in need so you donate five dollars uh you're you're very literally feeding 50 people, uh, with those $5. Uh, so you can see how the numbers add up, uh, dramatically, but 50 million people are, are hurting and struggling right now. Uh, there's a lot of us out there that are, that are still blessed, even during these, these times of, of economic and health despair. Um, you know, we've, we've got uh, a lot of love left to give and, um, you know, hopefully we can help accomplish, uh, quite a few goals, um, with this new nonprofit. So I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to see where this leads us.
0: No, and that's great insight, Bill. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you know, you talked about interrupt hunger and I know you've been, you and I have talked about it over the years. Um, and I can tell you that I know you've always been there uh, raising your hand when I call to arms to to ride 165 miles over three days on a bike, or you've been there when I've needed, you know, help to uh, create awareness campaigns. And, you know, when we were looking for guests for the, uh, for this podcast, um, you've always raised your hand. So I can tell you as soon as uh, Interrupt Hunger goes live, I'll be on that site and I'll be joining your cause. So I, you know, I thank you for doing that.
1: Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Yeah. We've, uh, yeah we've been on quite a few journeys and uh, and, and fun adventures over the years so i, I know if i'm going to be with donovan quill we're going to have a good time and uh and, and and quite usually help quite a few people along the way so exactly. uh yeah we've had a good time buddy yeah it's been fun
0: so thank you so much for uh, for being a guest on uh, rare voices and um say hi to tracy and the girls for me thank yeah, you will do thanks buddy You've been listening to Rare Voices, brought to you by the people of OptiMe If you want to hear more Rare Voices, go to rare-voices.com. There you can learn about our shows, read articles from industry thought leaders, and fill out a forum to be a guest on Rare Voices. Again, that's rare-voices.com. I'm Donovan Quill, co-founder of OptiMe Thanks for listening. And don't forget to listen for more Rare Voices all around you, each and every day.